This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Raslan, today, we have the returns of, he is, he uh, was an uh, advertising man of uh, some renown in Kuala Lumpur, uh, Vernon Adrian Among. Hi. Hi, and uh, I don't know how else to describe you, Vernon. I wish I could. Uh, I'm uh, a bit of a hyphen. Yeah. Yeah. Actor, <laughs> actor as well. Man and, of many moving parts, yeah. And also very good, for, appropriate for this, for the topics we have uh, today. We have um, BFM's Mr. Tech Man, I call him. Uh, he is Matt Armitage. Hey, Cam, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. And I managed to not call you Matt Armitage. Um, but I don't mind. Whatever works. Okay. <laughs> Our three topics this week will be topic number one is Clubhouse. Topic number two is Audible Books. Audible books or just talking books or audio books, audio books, audio books. And yeah. finally, uh, virtual reality and the illusion of choice. So uh, with topic number one, Clubhouse, um, Clubhouse, if you are an iPhone user, is uh, it's the new flavor of the month. It's what is it? It's a it's a hangout spot. Uh, I wish I could be further along in my my experience with Clubhouse than I am, um, and I know that Matt is much further along, and Vernon and I are quite new to it, but... I only joined it yesterday, so I haven't even experienced anything yet. Right, and uh, and I've experienced a little bit, a lot of confusion. Uh, Matt, can you describe what Clubhouse is in a really nice little succinct way? Well, yeah, it's a bit like an app that, uh, that gives you access to, in theory, global thought leaders, uh, more likely the person in the... Uh, the room next door to you, uh, chatting as though it was radio. So these are kind of live, spontaneous broadcasts. They're not like podcasts. They're not archived for posterity. So the idea is it's uh, very, you know, tune in and listen now. So it has that uh, uh, ephemerality about it. And uh, it's quite democratic in that it's possible for people to wave their hands digitally and, uh, and speak. Uh, either pontificate or ask questions of the panelists. In some ways, it's like what we're doing right now, except that the listeners will be, everyone's involved. Yes, right? although yeah. if you've got one of the larger talks where there are kind of 5,000 people listening, obviously raising your hands really probably not going to do a great deal because you have to be let in by a moderator. So there is that veneer of democracy about it but it is very much a, a one-way broadcasting platform uh vernon in, in your short time with clubhouse have you experienced anything at all nothing at all i was encouraged by a friend to join i joined yesterday and then i've been too busy to kind of like uh, explore anything else i tried to i made an attempt uh, but the room had shut down by the time i tried to get in so that was a story of my life actually <laughs> well I've, I've listened in on a couple of things um and uh uh, what what I like about it is that it it's able to take up conversations that have not been able to find space on established media um, because they're not necessarily very interesting <laughs> in a sense um, and they, they they're quite niche and so it is right. sort of interesting to listen in on these conversations I've not taken part in anything um, and that everybody can have a voice and it, of course it you know it it isn't limited purely to just Malaysia, although I have been listening to just Malaysian things, but the spread can be global. And so 
there is something kind of exciting about this clubhouse. If you if you have an eye. Well, I I think the 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 environment in which it operates is pretty similar to like doing a live streaming podcast through like Facebook or Instagram. Is that correct, Matt? Because I haven't experienced it myself, so I I'm assuming it's like that. Uh, but it doesn't it, get recorded. Yeah. Well. Well. It it theoretically doesn't get recorded, although people have been recording the streams because you can just record them out to a, an audio feed. So uh, Clubhouse has had to shut down several simulcast sites that have been rebroadcasting uh, some of the talks. So yes, it is a bit like the, the live streaming, but like Cam said, there is that element of interaction as well. You can put your hand up, you can ask questions. So on most live streaming platforms, you can ask questions via text rather than via voice you can actually be added to the list of panel speakers so so promoted from the audience if you like to a, a speaker mm. on the stage so there is that that element of it and sometimes you see in these kind of bigger discussions when people are brought onto the stage to ask uh, questions of the the lead speakers after a while, the stage gets so big that they do ask people to drop back into the audience. But obviously, everyone is uh, a bit reticent to do that because suddenly they've got their name and their icon up next to whoever the, the celebrity is. Maybe it's Mark Andreessen or, or whatever who's doing that particular talk. But Matt, have you found it useful and enjoyable? Um, not massively. I mean, most of my experience with it has been that it's... Uh, a little bit like an audio version of LinkedIn, and LinkedIn is not my favorite uh, of the social media uh, platforms. What I have enjoyed is um, listening to, I've been listening to a, a lot of kind of discussions uh, with the, the hip hop community. So uh, MC Hammer is uh, is really active on Clubhouse uh, and hosts a lot of uh, conversations. So I've tuned into a lot of things that he's been uh, part of and listened to people like Chuck D from uh, Public Enemy. Uh, and of course, the uh, the director Shaka King has uh, also been a, on a few of these things as well. So it's interesting to, to see, as, as Cam said, that those kind of sides of uh, cultural culture and community that don't necessarily get broadcast to the mainstream and the conversations themselves can be a, a lot more freewheeling you know when we do uh, when we listen to to stars doing uh, media interviews there's usually a very narrow sort of channel of focus now that might be down to the pr team it might be down to what has been briefed but discussions on uh, clubhouse can go much longer and one of the kind of nice things again about that global aspect is that some of the chat rooms actually go on for up to 24 hours or longer at a time. They just have this rotating cast of, of speakers. So you can just uh, sort of come in and out of them, but the room actually exists for sort of 24 hours or 48 hours at a time. Can you monetize the stuff that you do on it? At the moment, not directly, but it's not even in its uh, public phase at the moment. So we don't really know what the plans are going to be. It's still in an invitation only beta. It hasn't been extended to right. other platforms like Android. So it it's very much pre-monetization, although I do believe that it has a, a, an asset value of around uh, 1 billion US dollars at the, at the moment in its non-public phase. Wow. So you can see, well, yeah, because it's backed by um, uh, Anderson, 
Horowitz, I think I've said that right, the, the big venture capital firm. Uh, so there's a lot of serious money uh, in Clubhouse. Uh, and just going back to the, the, the point you made uh, right at the start about it not being recorded, it is actually recorded. It's recorded by Clubhouse uh, for purposes of um, you know, legal issues and, and that kind of thing. So we don't necessarily know what's going to happen to those recordings, whether they're just going to be wiped after a certain period of time. And there's also a privacy aspect that, as far as we know, those recordings are kept on servers in China. Wow. I think that uh, well, a couple of things. One is that clearly I am just not as hip and groovy as you, Matt, because MC Hammer, I mean, that's like, that's just like too groovy. And it, it also, mm -hmm. I found that it's been attracting um, a certain kind of, um, I don't know, celebrity, if that's the word, uh, who, that's uh, been somewhat slightly sidelined. Van Jones, for instance, I don't know if you know him, a very slippery guy who's been on CNN. Is he a Trumpist? Is he not? Who knows what he is? Yeah. He's, he, sort of, he, he's in a lot of uh, Hammer's talks as well. Right. So he's really carving out space uh, for himself. So you're saying, has it been monetized? I think a lot of people are jumping in there and thinking this is a platform to really push um, th their own personal brand. And, and if someone like MC Hammer can reactivate himself, it's uh, peculiar. I mean, he hasn't really reactiv uh, reactivated himself in that sense. He's always been very present, but that's what I mean by it's people who are not necessarily covered in the, the broad stretch of media. I mean, he was, uh, I think he was a, a minister for uh, quite a while as well, and he had his own uh, uh, programs on, you know, one of the evangelical stations, uh, TV stations. So he's always been very present and very active. But he's not necessarily been within that mainstream of culture since his sort of pop culture heyday. Yeah. I would be cynical enough to kind of say that perhaps maybe he might have been commissioned to make an appearance and to bring more people in. Because eventually the popularity of the app will lead to, you know, uh, people wanting to participate in its going public and all that kind of stuff. It could well be, but he seems to be focused very much on pushing sort of uh, uh, black issues within the, the that kind of sphere. So a lot of it's um, empowerment talks for people who want to get into hip hop or film. Oh yeah, and that and that kind of thing. So he does seem to to come at it from a very kind of grassroots level. So. Uh, and as far as I know, he was one of the early users on the platform, because don't forget, it only launched in May last year. Uh, sorry, April last year. Uh, and at the time of its launch, it only had about 1500 users. Now, it currently mm -hmm. has close to 10 million. Wow. So I think. Yeah, well, I'm sure I'm sure that this yeah. snowballing effect. I mean, you bring in you bring in some influencers and that's how it takes off. Yeah. Um, because I mean, like what here, listening to what what it can do and etc. It's like any kind of like I guess uh, streaming app uh, that allows you to broadcast to many people. Yes, the functionalities are maybe slightly different, um, but uh, yeah, it seems I'm not sure whether I would. Yeah, uh, I think go I think on to it. I think one of the differences with it is when you think about things like Twitch is when you think about things like facebook uh, streaming mm -hmm. you have to actually know the person and you have to know when they're, they're streaming whereas with clubhouse it's much more of a discovery service so you log in and you can search for everything that's going on within right. that, that house right and that's what kind of makes it different 
and what makes it a lot more accessible. Because again, with with Twitches, you can kind of restrict who who comes in. So there is that flavor of democracy about it. And of course, there is that nice element of it just being audio only. So nobody really has to worry about uh, whether they've gotten out of bed to talk or, you know, how, how they look. It's right, much yeah. more about the, the ideas than the, the kind of presentation. Yeah. We, we, must, we must move on. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see where Clubhouse goes or, or if it'll become the next, I don't know, or Netscape or something that disappears. And uh, we move on, though, to uh, topic number two, uh, which is, Vernon, audio books. Yes. Yeah, well, um, you know, we've, we've gone into MCO2, Movement Control Order 2, since, uh, when was it? Uh, towards the first half of uh, January, right? Uh, one of the things that I decided to do was do regular walks. And I thought I'd listen to audio books while I walked around the condominium that I live in. And uh, before I knew it, I started to get addicted to listening to audiobooks. Um, and sometimes I would walk for more than an hour and sometimes even up to two hours because the books that I was listening to was unputdownable, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And uh, so I was thinking to myself, have we actually really, really maximized the potential of audiobooks? Because um, in this day and age, we're all multitasking. And... Uh, and you might know or not know that um, I kind of like give language, English language coaching to various people. And in recent times, I've told them to listen to audiobooks. And many of them are coming back to me saying that uh, they are listening to it while they're driving. They're listening to it while they are on the trains and stuff like that. And I was thinking to myself, yeah, and I guess this is also the reason why podcasting has become so successful. And therefore... Audiobooks, have we got enough audiobooks by Malaysian writers out there, you know, to give uh, our Malaysian public a taste of uh, the good stuff that has arisen from the talents of Malaysians? Matt, I'm going to turn to you very quickly now because you are an audiobook aficionado. I mean, that's the only way that I'm able to consume books. So I, I rely on audiobooks. I have done for about four or five years i i'm not mm -hmm. able to read books because i, I get vertigo if I, i'm reading on on print so it has been a, a kind of lifesaver for me and and i probably spend three or four hours a day on average listening to audiobooks i mean i'm not going to mention the the name of the service that i'm on but it's it's interesting because the as vernon was saying you do get addicted to it but what you also find is that uh, when you're reading a book, you know, you can get into the story, you can get into the way that the, the language is written. But that performative aspect of the audiobooks also mm. makes an enormous difference. There are fantastic books that I've not been able to get through on audiobooks, um, like A, a History of uh, Seven Killings, simply because I don't like the narrator. And ah. if you don't like the narrator that really stops you from being able to to consume the the book so a lot of books i end up returning not because there's anything wrong with the story not because there's anything wrong with the writing but because there's something wrong with the way it's been performed yeah i think i get you because uh, recently i downloaded a book and uh it was it was it was read by somebody whom i did, thought wasn't very good and i just could not i just could not follow it 
But yeah, uh, the, the reader is, is very important because another book that uh, I had read, uh, listened to recently was, uh, was uh, Call Me By Your Name. And I'd seen the movie and I read somewhere that the book is really beautiful. And I turned it on and it was read by Arnie Hammer, who was uh, in a oh. bit of a controversy recently. But he does a damn good job. He does a really good job of reading it. I mean, like I was blown away by how much oomph he gave the words. Yeah. But I, I personally have not been able to get into um, audiobooks. I, I, my concentration level doesn't quite match that. I, 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 if, I, if, I, if I disappear for like half a second and I miss a word, then yeah. I, I've, I've lost touch with what the hell's going on. And, um, and I'm not a person to sort of stop and go back. And, I, and also, I, I actually quite enjoy reading. I, I can do that because I don't have Matt's vertigo thing. What works for me is that I've embedded it into another primary activity, which is walking. So I'm, you know, I'm, I've set myself that I'm going to walk because I need the exercise. And because I need the exercise, I need to keep at it for a while. And so I'm focused on the, just the emulation of you know, the walking. And so that helps me focus on, on, on what's being said. And I just finished uh, Sapiens, which is a huge book. Um, it, took me, it took me a while, but I'm so glad I had read, in inverted commas, the book, the whole book, because it, it's such a good book. It is really great that, that these, a lot of these old books, you know, like I don't know, Dickens and Jane Austen stuff, are being able to find a, an afterlife, a new kind of... Um, Mm. a new revenue stream after so many hundreds of years where well, for who <laughs> well for who well there these things are all long out of copyright so you know mr dickens yeah time ago and the dickens family get nothing but you know why not well still it's great to 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 hear these things and monetize them again i i was i was uh, one of the reasons why i wanted to talk about audiobooks is also because we have malaysian authors and and i i stumbled upon a book that i really loved when i first read it and i read it again several years later and I still loved it and I still love it to this day. And I wish there was an audiobook version so I could share it with friends who don't really read very much, but would be driving or would be taking the train because I think what he had to say was amazing. And this is uh, Rayman Rashid's A Malaysian Journey. I mean, like, I wish there could be an audiobook version of that. And if nobody is going to do it, maybe I'd like to do it and maybe get his brother Rafiq to voice it. He's got a great voice. How much would you pay to, to listen to that? How much would you be prepared to pay? I pay fifteen ringgit. Because, yeah. uh, Matt was for some reason shy to mention Audible Books, uh, the the service mm -hmm. that he uses. Uh, how much? How much does that serve? Because that gives you access to everything. Yeah, I mean, One pretty thing? much, pretty much anything that's uh, been recorded as an audio book you can find on the service. Um, it, it, it operates on a kind of club basis. You can either buy the books uh, per book, and they are expensive. They're about £25 per book. Or the, the club member price is, uh, I think it's about uh, six, six pounds, which is about, it works out about 50 ringgit per, per title. But they are very, very expensive to produce. That's, yeah. uh, that's one of the issues with them, because uh, especially when you're talking about somebody like Arnie Hammer, you know, there's a, there's a, a huge fee that you have to pay for that person to be so you have to be sure that you're going to be selling enough uh, units to to get it i mean what, uh, recently i've been listening to a lot of books narrated by the actor will Patton because he's mm -hmm. he's got a really lovely voice 
uh, he's mostly been working with people like Stephen King and James Lee Burke. So I've ended up reading a lot of their books that I hadn't just to to hear the way he he performs. But I, I think if you were looking at a price of around 15 ringgit, you're not going to be able to do it economically uh, unless you're actually doing this much more as a kind of a, a charitable service and to cover costs rather than to to kind of make to make money from it. Yeah, I, I think it has to be uh, some kind of CSR, you know, and uh, and uh, I, I also uh, am um, I, I'm also a subscriber to scribe.com, S-C-R-I-B-D.com. And that's only like eight USD a month. And I have access to quite a, a good collection. I mean, Sapiens was from there. So uh, are they the, the full books at Scribe? Yes. Or are they yeah. The... I don't think you get the full inventory of Audible. Um, yeah, but yeah, but Script uh, has got quite, uh, I, I think, quite a, a worthwhile collection. Yeah. Well, uh, we must move on. But uh, Vernon, afterwards, you and I can talk about mm. another great, much-loved Malaysian classic called "Confessions of an Old Boy" by a fellow called Yes, Pam Rustan, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I think you know we can talk, we can talk some rights and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, okay, good. I'll I'll represent you. Well, also, the the narrator mm. wouldn't necessarily cost a lot of money. Could yeah, correct yeah. He yeah. might do it for free. Might, yeah, <laughs> he might. He might. <laughs> I, I think we can safely say he will. Um, so uh, we'll move on though, and in a moment we're going to be talking about uh, virtual reality and the illusion of choice here on mm. BFM eighty nine point nine. And we're back on a better culture with myself, Cam Raslan, uh, Vernon, Adrian, Among, and Matt Armitage. And now, Matt. Um, uh, virtual reality and the illusion of choice well yeah we've been sold this idea of virtual reality for kind of the last um, 10 years or so you know the the tech industry has kind of championed it it's told us that uh, it's going to launch us into new realms it's going to change the the way we see the world you know it can uh, let us stand on top of the pyramids or you know take a nap at the uh, acropolis and we've seen a lot of movies like uh, Ready Player One and Surrogates where people can kind of live their entire lives online. You know, they, they go to school online, they work online, they do all their socializing online. And it's become this kind of tech utopian dream, you know, unlimited resources, unlimited uh, experiences for, for everyone. And I recently read this article called uh, Billionaires See VR as a Way to Avoid Radical Social Change, which was uh, on the, uh, the Wired website. And it kind of showed me a, a different side of the, the virtual reality uh, kind of discussion because, you know, the reality of virtual reality, the reality of virtual reality, um, it's always a little bit of a, a, a letdown. You know, a lot of the, the simulations are uh, rough and ready. They're very kind of jerky. People get motion sickness when they go inside the, uh, the, the, the places. And it's still really expensive. You know, you need uh, a really good VR headset. It's going to set you back probably more than a thousand US dollars. And you need a really powerful computer system to do it. Plus, an awful lot of space you know you can't go on that journey into virtual reality if you've only got a meter between the sofa and the coffee table because you're just going to fall flat on your face and uh, <laughs> hurt yourself um 
But that said, you know, the, the, the simulations are now pretty realistic. And some of the uh, recently released virtual reality titles have sold in quantities of about uh, 2 million. So, you know, those are, those are sizable numbers. We have a pretty large sort of community. But it does seem that it, some of the, uh, the, the pioneers, their intentions might be a little bit more sinister. I mean, I'll, I'll just read you this, uh, uh, this quote from, I think it's uh, the former CTO of uh, Oculus, which is a virtual reality headset maker. He's a guy called uh, John Cormack. And this is something he said on the Joe Rogan podcast uh, last year. And he said, the promise of VR is to make the world you wanted. It is not possible on earth to give everyone all that they would want. Not everyone can have Richard Branson's private island. People react negatively to any talk of economics, but it's just resource allocation. You have to make decisions about where things go. And I think that's quite telling because it's also about who gets to make the decisions of who gets what and where things go. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, once again, Matt took something perfectly nice like virtual reality and then has turned it into some <laughs> dystopian nightmare. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much, Matt. But uh, can I just ask, has anyone here actually used any virtual reality uh, stuff? I never have. I've never even watched a 3D movie. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I've tried it once or twice, but not, not massive amounts because, again, vertigo. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, w I went to uh, the Penang House of Music in Georgetown, Penang, and they actually had um, a virtual reality experience uh, that, you could, that you could try, where you put on these goggles and you sat in a room, and the singer singing P. Rami songs was basically dancing all around you. It was quite bizarre. Uh, it felt, well, it was interesting, but it was very rudimentary. Yeah. So yeah. I kind of like get how, um, you know, unless you have the machineries and the uh, and the applications and all that, um, it, it would be rudimentary. Yeah. And, and yeah. Can I just mention Ready Player One? I watched the movie and, and uh, one of the things that struck me about that was that it was really, so there's this thing called virtual reality. It's really new and happening and young people are supposed to be in it. But the movie at least was written by and then directed by old people, old guys. And it was really, mm -hmm. it really felt like an old guy's idea of like what's really funky and happening now. And it, it was constantly <laughs> referencing back to the past. It was referencing back to their own past where, where actually they were much more, they, had, they didn't just have an illusion of choice. They had actual choice and then they went out and did things. And the images that are sort of inserted into your virtual reality thing have to reference a thing that people know. So you mentioned the pyramids. You got to know what the pyramids are to, in order to be, amazed that you're standing on the pyramids pyramids if you don't even know what the pyramids are then it's like what the hell is this um yeah so the images inside the virtual reality have to reference something that that, that you have you're familiar with by somewhere else yeah yeah otherwise yeah. you're just in a kind of crazy messed up world and i don't i don't know if young i don't even know if young people are really taking up virtual reality because where's the fun I'm not sure. 
Well, this is where you get the crossover with those online platform games. So what a lot of the uh, online platform games makers are now trying to do is to make the worlds that uh, the games are set in to be as realistic as possible. Some of them are futuristic, but others uh, have been set in ancient Rome. So they've actually worked with history departments at universities to make those simulations as accurate as they can. So if they're dealing with Rome, for example, they actually get the dimensions of the, the streets correct. They, they get the kind of artifacts that would be seen on the streets. So that is one way of connecting people to the past by sending them into very uh, realistic facsimiles of that, uh, of that past, but as part of the game that they're playing. So that would be the, the kind of fun extension of it. In a, yeah, in but their 15-year-old's like, oh my God, the Circus Maximus actually is 15 cubits wide. And it, it only cost me three sestertias to, to get in here. I mean, what do they care about historical accuracy? Oh, they, they don't. But, they, but there's the strategic aspect of the game, which is how you negotiate the, the ancient city. So you actually start to learn about the, the landmarks and the different sites within it, because that becomes part of the, uh, the, 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 the actual rolling landscape of the game. But I think one of the things that they're talking about with this virtual reality extension is not so much this gaming part not so much this idea of going to uh, the the pyramids the reality i think that they're seeing is that rather than aspiring to live in a nice house you know uh, or or a, a comfortable enough house you can live in a cubicle that has no facilities it might have you know everything's peeling off the wall but as soon as you put the headset on you're living in a mansion mm. so th they're talking about putting people into those landscapes as a way of not giving them those basic amenities and living standards in the real world. So it's a, it's a kind of escapist fantasy, but at the same time, these are all going to be privately owned spaces. So there'll be a flow of money going up to the people controlling the spaces, mm. but mm. the people down at the bottom can only ever aspire to live in these uh, fake representations, which they can never even own. Which, which again, that 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 is the Ready Player One um, landscape. That's that that's the future that they've imagined there. Well, ab absolutely, which is why it's kind of sinister that you actually hear the people behind those companies uh, saying similar things. That uh, that they see this not as uh, not as the way to extend the experience of people, but to give them uh, material experiences that they shouldn't really, that they won't really be able to afford or have access to, so rather than saying say, we should say, actually do something to change the society and give people access to right. those experience and that affluence. So they're actually saying out loud, we're going to make crack cocaine and we're going to sell it to poor people and make their lives worse, but make lots of money out of them. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be worse. It just means we're not going to bother making anything better. And it's interesting because it comes at this time when people are being very active socially and saying, you know, we want things to change. We want higher minimum wages. We want better living conditions. But you've got these guys who are saying, well, you know, we've got, we've got a cure for that. We don't need to give you more money. We don't need to provide you with a better place to live, or you don't need to provide yourself with a better place to live because you can escape into this world that we've created for you. But I think that's perfect. But I think that's not that's not the that's not the uh, what's the, that's not the motivation of of the people creating the virtual reality. The motivation is to make money out of the imaginations of uh, others. You know, like they want to escape, so let's try and come up with something that'll help them escape their depressing lives. 
you know, kind of thing. And so, yeah, I, I, I feel that once again, it's a, it's somebody kind of getting, does that make sense? There's it, it, it not, yeah. But again, I mean, this is another quote from Cormac. Uh, not mm-hmm. everyone can have a mansion. Not everyone can have a home theater. These are things we can simulate in virtual reality. Now, the simulation is not as good as the real thing. If you are rich and you have your own home theater or mansion and private island, good for you. You're probably not the people who are going to benefit the most. So, the, And he goes on to say, you know, most of the people in the world live in cramped quarters that are not what they would choose to be if they had unlimited resources. So you're not actually offering people the ability to change that circumstance. You're just giving them this kind of escape note and telling them, don't bother to question, don't bother to aspire, don't bother to try and make things better. So there is is an element, yes, they want to make money out of it, but there does seem to be this darker edge to it that, you know, we don't want that money to be redistributed. Well, I want. I, I'm not sure if mm. you. It's how you you are interpreting those words, which you've. I've Perhaps. never heard those words before, because Vernon's like a bit more. Uh, glass is half full, and and Matt's kind of like saying you're drinking Soylent Green, and uh, <laughs> and and, I, and I'm not entirely sure where where it's at. I I would like I would I would like to to one I'd like to give virtuality a try, but two I. I really want to know if young people are interested in it because I, I just get a sense that it's, it's not really grabbing people's attention. I've been watching people talk about virtual reality since the 1980s and it's never yeah. taken off. Yeah. Um, uh, so I don't know. Um, but I, I see where you're coming from, Matt. And yeah, yeah. rich people are bad. No, it's not, I mean, it's not necessarily that, but I, I see virtual reality as being a technology a bit like Bluetooth. I mean, Bluetooth was invented has been around since the 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 1990s but it wasn't until 20 years later that we actually found any use or need for bluetooth technologies and i see virtual reality in kind of the same way it's very much an emerging movement at the moment and i think it'll be you know two or three decades before we actually get to that point where it's really useful because unless it's as good as the holodeck on star trek <laughs> it's really not going to be that useful for people because um, v- vr headsets are are terrible i mean nobody wants to walk around with a set of binoculars welded to the side of their head so until yeah. you know it's, create it, that, that. yeah it's, it's interesting you how you say bluetooth was had you know it took a long while before it gained traction and probably it it gained traction when other things kind of like aligned to make it more applicable or more feasible or more you know, that kind of thing. And when I was thinking about that, I was thinking about like theater, for instance, the whole experience of theater. I mean, like, uh, I remember going to Ola Bola, watching the musical at Istana Budaya and how they use the video to create a virtual reality of a helicopter, you know, coming into the stadium. I mean, like, uh, yeah, it just made me think of that. I don't, I don't know whether this makes sense, but yeah, this, this, when will we get to that point where instead of having all this video equipments around the theater to create the helicopter arriving, people just put on headsets and it happened. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that yeah. feasibility, and, and, applicability, blah, blah, all that stuff. And also you, you stay at home. You didn't go to the theater. We must move oh, on. Yeah. We must just move plug on. in. 
So we're going to uh, we'll watch this space with uh, virtual reality. Uh, I predict it's never going to happen, but then I said that about the internet. <laughs> <laughs> the reality um, is changing so fast that virtual reality can't keep up. How's yeah. that? And, and I, I agree with Matt. <laughs> if it's not as good as the holodeck in Star Trek, then just don't come. Just don't come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just not worth it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we move on, though, to the final part of the show, uh, recommendations, where you recommend something that we think might be of interest. Uh, and I go first. Um, I've, well, I've been moving around a lot this week, so I haven't really had a chance to do anything. But one thing that has happened, and I, I've kind of like recommended it before. I want to recommend it again because it just constantly blows my mind. I've been going through another Korean movie phase. And uh-huh. <laughs> you know, just like just watching any old Korean movie and jumping in. And, and even, even the, the bad ones are better than most of the other dross that's coming out of anywhere else in the world. And... Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to recommend any titles per se, but I want to say if you watch a Korean movie, I want you to watch, I demand, I command you to watch <laughs> the art direction in a Korean movie. I think it's an area that, say, Hollywood especially is really bad at. It's just the way that the, the, the filmmakers decorate a person's home, especially in in a Korean movie and corridors corridors, I think are very, seem to be a very important thing in, in Korean life in apartment blocks, corridors, uh, the way they decorate it's, it's, it's grungy. It's, it's, it's full of individual little details of a human being. It's not pretty. Whereas when you go to Hollywood, they always aren't direct the house. So it's really, it's like a ready for a home, home interiors shoot. It's, it's, it's the best version of, of what you would want to be. But the, the Korean ones speak very honestly of the people. And so my recommendation... Give us a, give us a title. Give us a title. I, I, so I can count. Oh, um, Memories of Murder is a magnificent movie. Okay. And, uh, I'll go look at that. that that's, a, that's a world-class movie, any stretch of the imagination. But another one I really like was Yellow Sea. Um, very grungy, very horrible. Uh, but what, what's also not, I, oh, I could go on about Korean movies and I better not. So <laughs> my recommendation is watch a Korean movie and watch the art direction, especially you Malaysian filmmakers, watch the art direction and replicate that. So um, uh, Vernon, what's your recommendation? Uh, my recommendation is a documentary I stumbled upon. Um, the way I see it. Uh, the way I see it is a 2020 American documentary. Um, and it was inspired by, or is about the work of the chief official White House photographer called uh, Pete Souza. Right. And uh, the film actually uh, uh, was ignited by his Twitter storm uh, when he decided to troll uh, Trump during Trump's presidency. And whatever that Trump put up on his Twitter, uh, Pete Souza, who had a wealth of photography, you know, pho- photography works from John F. Kennedy, would then put up a Twitter response uh, showing uh, the contrast between what Trump was doing as a president compared to what other presidents did. And this particular documentary, the way I see it, actually uh, captures it beautifully and shows what, what kind of depths of depravity American government descended into <laughs> with the last presidential inauguration before biden yeah i keep seeing it coming up and i i thought of that eh, should i watch this should i not i i thought it might be a bit kind of saccharine and a bit kind of like uh you know america the beautiful well, yeah yeah it is it kind of is but it and it and it does in a sense you know 
provide a, a feel of a roast America through rose tinted glasses. But it's also, I don't know, I, I felt it was worthwhile watching, you know, just to get the sense of uh, history, you know, that uh, this nation had gone through. Yeah. Okay. What's In recent again? times, this is recent times, the way I see it, the way I see it. It's on Netflix, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll check it out then. Uh, Matt, what you got? Uh, can I do two? One very quick. Um, one, the first one is an audio book for Vernon. Uh, ah, good if one. You can, Thank uh, you. If you can find it, it's the complete works of uh, the, the the Sherlock Holmes stories, and it's oh, narrated wow. by Stephen Steve, Fry. Stephen Fry. It's great value because it's oh. 70, seventy-five hours of Stephen Fry just telling Sherlock Holmes stories. So it's absolutely fantastic. The best I'm a audio I'm a big Stephen Fry fan. I yeah. just I'm I'm plowing through all his do- the documentaries that he's made. I'm I'm going through a documentary phase at the moment. So yeah, he's done a lot of documentaries, and yeah, he he, he he's read quite a number of books as well. So yes, thank you for reminding me about it. Cool. Um, My other pick is uh, actually the Mission Impossible films with uh, with Tom Cruise. I I was having a brain dead day the other day and I rewatched Rogue Nation, which I think is number five in the series. And I realized I hadn't actually watched the earlier movies. So I've been going back and watching the first one, which was made in kind of 1995. And even though these movies are only kind of 20 or 25 years old, the technology that Tom Cruise uses in them really looks like it comes from another time. I mean, in the first movie, he's got all these devices strapped to his wrist. Mm. And they're literally the size of his forearm. And you think, wow, that was the kind of leading edge technology only 25 years ago. And as the movies advance, it advances a little bit, but even up to sort of 10 years ago, these still look like they come from another era. They don't look as though they belong to the digital age, even though even that first movie is very much a part of the, the digital world, the digital age. Mm. I, I, good one. Yeah, yep. gu- uh, yeah. Gu- guilty secret, actually, is I, I really quite enjoy these uh, Tom Cruise movies. I think that he's a very strange man, but he's the best Tom Cruise out there. and and as a sort of tom cruise void uh humanoid kind of tom cruise he he really does fit that action genre very well but well there was the there was the movie um uh tom cruise one where where uh uh, it it was um a spielberg film what was it um was it what spielberg film spielberg where he was doing the the sort of touch screen Um, thing minority report minority report where well, yes. I mean, it, it was like amazing at the time. It's like, oh my God, his hands are in the air and he's like moving things on a screen. Yeah, but he, yeah, had these, yeah. he had this sort of gauntlets on his arms. Um, and, uh, and only just, just a couple of years later, um, uh, Steve Jobs launches the, the iPad. Yeah, touch screens. Touch screens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, because I, I, I researched this for one of my shows last year, I think it's something like there are almost 500 patents that were inspired or are linked to the movie Minority Report from the technologies they showed in there. Yeah, people have done work inspired by it and come up with technologies. So those patents actually link to technologies shown in the the movie. And to get that world that they created, uh, Spielberg actually did an away day with, uh, an an away weekend, a gaming weekend with... um, futurists, uh, scientists, mm. engineers, to actually create a kind of holistic world of the mid-21st century. Wow. 
Wow. Okay. Impressive. Okay. Yeah. These are the kind of facts that you can only get here on a bit of culture um, when <laughs> Matt is on the show. <laughs> And so uh, I bring uh, this show to an end. Thank you very much to uh, Matt Armitage. Thank you very much. And Vernon Adrian Among. Yep, thank you for having and, me again. And myself, Cam Raslan. And uh, please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.999. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.